Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Life can be very difficult. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, the next he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. Just then the phone rang and she turned to pick it up. She barely had said hello when she heard a sickening sound as Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened up the bag. There was Chippy, still alive, but understandably stunned. Since the bird was covered with soot and dust, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realized that Chippy was now soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do, and she reached for her hair dryer and blasted him with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days later, after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He mostly just sits and stares. Life can be very difficult. If you were not here last week to what will forever be called the teleprompter fiasco, well, if you weren't, I'm not going to go into it, but this is why you never want to miss church. That was the longest six minutes of my entire life. But understand, you said it was entertaining for you. Back to 1 Kings verse 15, please. So Bathsheba entered to the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What is on your mind? So she said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Your son Solomon certainly shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. But now behold, Adonijah is king, and now my lord the king, you do not know it. We left off last week with Nathan giving Bathsheba some advice that is going to ultimately save the life of both her and her son. So Bathsheba walks into the king's bedroom, past the human hot water bottle Abishag, and then prostrates herself before the king. The Bible doesn't record it, but you have to wonder what looked passed between them, although I really doubt they greeted each other with a warm embrace. Forgive my imagination, but I can almost see Bathsheba saying, hey, are those my fuzzy bunny slippers you are wearing? But that's really reading into the text. Bathsheba begins by reminding David of a promise he made to her that Solomon would be the king. We have no record of this promise in the Bible, but there is no reason to doubt the truth of it. This is not simply a sordid story of power politics, as, as some have claimed. 
On the contrary, the royal conspiracy was a holy and divinely ordained conspiracy based on the plans and the promises of God. In this regard, Bathsheba's name seems especially significant for her name means daughter of the oath. In fact, the second part of her name, Sheba, has the same verbal root, word, root of the word that is used in swearing an oath throughout the rest of the chapter. Bathsheba was a daughter of the covenant, and therefore she believed the kingdom promises of God as was spoken to David the king. And for a personal application, we too have heard the kingdom promises of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the son of David, has become the king of God's kingdom. As he went about teaching and preaching, Jesus said that the kingdom was near or even that the kingdom has come. What Jesus meant by that was that the kingdom was the rule and the dominion of God which he would establish by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of mercy, forgiveness, and resurrection life. And such a kingdom could only be gained by offering of a sacrifice for sin and a return from death to eternal life. And although in many ways the kingdom has come, we are still waiting for all of its promises to be totally fulfilled. This is why we pray, thy kingdom come. We are looking in faith for the kingdom to come in all its full dominion. And while we wait, we are called upon to believe in the kingdom promises of God. Let me back up. First, let me ask, do you belong to the kingdom of God? If so, then swear ongoing allegiance to Jesus Christ as your king and believe that one day you will see all of his kingdom promises come true. Believe this even when the progress of the gospel seems slow or when things seem to be getting worse instead of better or when the world seems tired and broken down or when you suffer grief and loss or physical pain or when God just seems oh so far away. That is when we really need to believe the kingdom promises of God by taking by faith what we cannot see until he comes again. In verse 18, she lets David know that Adonijah is pretending to be king and David is completely unaware of all of this. Now on the one hand, these words signal the illegitimacy of Adonijah's coronation. Adonijah had become king behind David's back. Far from being a development that was endorsed by David, the old king did not even know about it. How different old King David had become from the king who had been praised back in 2 Samuel 14 as having wisdom like the angel of God to know everything that was in the land. Now the once great king was impotent and ignorant of what was going on right behind his back. Look at verse 19 with me. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened steers and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon your servant. 
And as for you, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are upon you to announce to them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come about, as soon as my lord the king lays down with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. She identified two of the many invited guests by name. Abiathar the priest may have been a shock to David. As we looked at last week, Abiathar had been a key supporter of David the last time one of his sons made a power grab for the throne. The fact that he was now with Adonijah underlined the seriousness of the situation. But the mention of Joab, the commander of the army, may have been less surprising to David. For all their ferocious loyalty, Joab and his brothers, the sons of Zeruah, had been hard for David to handle. In particular, three times there had been a major falling out between Joab and David when contrary to the king's wishes, Joab the commander killed someone that Joab considered to be a threat. One of those that Joab had killed was David's son Absalom. So the fact that this powerful, competent, and ruthless commander of the army was now with Adonijah was an ominous turn of events. Verse 22, please. And behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. They informed the king, saying, Nathan the prophet is here. And when he came into the king's presence, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then Nathan said, my Lord the King, have you yourself said Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on the throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fattened steers and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking in his presence, and they say, Long live King Adonijah. But me, even me your servant, Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has these things been done by my lord the king, and you have not let your servants know he shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? No sooner had Bathsheba given her report to David that as they had planned, Nathan the prophet came in and confirmed her words. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that in the mouth of two witnesses, every word shall be established. That is why Nathan came in to corroborate Bathsheba's account. The last place we saw Nathan was back in first or 2 Samuel 12 when he rebuked his friend David over the scandal with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. At that point, Nathan appears again and confirms the report that Bathsheba just gave him. It is interesting that these two people had full knowledge of David's deepest secret, which was his sin against Uriah. It was that fateful decision that propelled him into a year-long period of darkness in which he orchestrated a murder plot and a cover-up that would have made Al Capone proud. Nathan's list of the uninvited sounds on the surface like a petulant complaint, as in, how could Adonijah fail to invite me of all people, and Zadok, and Benaiah, and also the Lord in whom 
in whom the Lord himself has taken a special interest. What's going on, your majesty? I mean, why wasn't I invited? I'm a nice poison. But that isn't what's going on. The prophet Nathan himself made the first promise that David would have a dynasty when he delivered this message from God in 2 Samuel 7, where we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Furthermore, we know from the book of Chronicles that God had indicated which of David's sons would become heir, where we read, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in those days. Adonijah and the rest of those men all knew these promises. He says, he also, he shall build a house for, by, for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. It's also very likely that Nathan's presentation of these facts brought to David's memory the terrible days of his son, Absalom's rebellion, and he did not want the nation to have to experience another civil war. Not only that, Solomon, as we just read, was to be a man of peace. And so being reared in the palace, he had no experience of war, as his father David did. And if there was a civil war, then how could Solomon possibly build the temple? Verse 28, Then King David responded and said, Summon Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king bowed and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, certainly as I vowed you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon certainly shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. I will indeed do so this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. What David is about to say to Bathsheba would change the course of human history. To this point, the king had barely spoken two words in this entire chapter. In fact, and what he says to Bathsheba in verse 16 comprises only two words in the Hebrew. But rising in his bed, David summons Bathsheba back into the royal chamber it may have been the first royal command that David had given in months. But in this climactic moment, we can once again sense this man's true and kingly dignity. King David summoned Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. Then David made a sacred vow, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and shall sit on my throne in place, in my place, even so will I do this day. When he said that David was joining Nathan and Bathsheba in their kingdom work, he knew who the kingdom's real king was. 
So he honored the king of all kings, praising the living God for saving him out of all of his many trials. This is the same David that we know from Samuel and the Psalms. The David who killed lions, slew giants, and conquered kingdoms by the continuing grace of God. Now this section suggests two matters for reflection. First, it was the fate of the kingdom that stirred David to action. And it makes me wonder, what stirs us as kingdom servants to life and action? I mean, what really catches our zeal, our passion? Is it our looks or our position in life? Or is it the thought of retiring to Florida to play golf and suck down yogurt? I'm talking to me also this morning. Do we really want, as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? I wonder, do the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer move, grip, and stir us? Because what stirs us really reveals what is in us. And must we not confess that frequently... Only our comfort zone has the ability to ignite any real type of zeal in us. Secondly, notice how much of the narrative, not only in this section, but in the whole story so far, describes nothing but human activity. Adonijah's quest for the throne is met by Nathan's vigilance and countered by the orders of the resurrected David. But there is little, if any reference at all, to divine intervention, as one commentator has put it. Yet God has made no spectacular, miraculous intervention in human affairs. He had not struck Adonijah down with any sudden illness, nor had he sent a bolt of lightning from heaven to spoil his celebration. At the right time and in the right situation, he had simply inspired minds with thoughts that moved them on and given them the exact words that were required to turn events back in the right direction. It is my personal belief that that is most often how God moves in the world today, in the lives of his children. It is naturally supernatural if you get my drift. In almost 36 years as a Christian, I can count on one hand what I would consider God's miraculous intervention in my life. Most of my Christian walk has been reading, fasting, praying, and putting one weary foot in front of the other as I strive to walk in the Spirit. But it seems to me that that is the biblical model. What do I mean? Well, if you read the book of Acts, it seems like there's a miracle about every five minutes. But did you know that the book of Acts covers 30 years? Guess how many miracles occur during those 30 years? Just 29. That means if you average it out, that was less than one miracle per year. And this is the book of Acts which I think had more miracles in it to authenticate the message of the gospel as the scripture hadn't been written yet. God today primarily speaks to us through his written word. He does not, 
As one lady in our last church said, tell her every day exactly what clothes she was supposed to put on. There's medicine for that today. Anyway, in verse 30, David declares he will do the deed before today, or the deed today or before his age and infirmity make that act impossible. To which Bathsheba replies, may King David live forever. Now, you have to admit, that does seem like a pretty strange thing to say, as the whole reason they are having this conversation is because David is basically on his deathbed. But her prayer should not be understood as a wish that the old king would linger on forever, or should it be taken as referring to life beyond the grave. Rather, Bathsheba was praying that the kingdom of David would last forever. And this, once again, is exactly what the Lord had promised. In his offspring, your throne shall be established forever. So Bathsheba's forever suggests that she understood Solomon's accession to the throne in accordance with God's promise. Verse 32. Then King David said, Summon to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel. And blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne. And he shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Judah and Israel. But Nia the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say the same. Just as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So the old king now resumes command. David may be old and cold, but it is important, however, to note in the text, no mention is ever made of senility. His mind is still sound. So he says, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. This was a shrewd and godly maneuver. David was calling together the prophet, the priest, and the representative of the king. Now, keep in mind, Adonijah had not consulted any of these men. But David did, and in doing so, he united the kingdom under the rule of God, who had appointed them to serve as rulers over Israel. The thing I want us to see is, once David had given those orders, people at that point had a choice to make. It's the same choice that we face every single day of our lives. Will we accept the king that God has anointed, submitting to his rule for our lives, or will we put ourselves on the throne and live by the rules of some other kingdom? Every single morning, I make the decision as to who is going to sit on the throne of my life. But please notice that we have here a rare glimpse of all three offices in cooperation, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Each of those offices were gloriously fulfilled in Jesus. 
You see, every time we see a prophet, a priest, or a king, we can make a connection to Christ for the work of these Old Testament leaders pointed to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the prophet who speaks the word of God. So we should listen to what he says. Jesus is the priest who offered himself as a sacrifice, so we must go to him for the forgiveness of sins. And finally, Jesus is the king who rules us and defends us. David then tells him to put Solomon on his mule. There's an obvious contrast between the display of Solomon's promotion and Adonijah's pompous entourage. By comparison, seeing Solomon riding a mule would be like seeing the king of England in his royal carriage or watching Air Force One take off with the president on board. Now, many years later, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem like Solomon and not like Adonijah. Solomon was to ride David's mule. Why? Why wouldn't he ride David's horse? That seems a lot cooler. The reason is that the mule was the animal of peace and the horse was the animal of conquest. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbol of peace, and not on a horse, which was a symbol of war. Why? Because at his first coming, he came here to provide peace through the cross. But there will come a day when Jesus will exchange a donkey for a horse, as he will be coming in judgment. Listen to how Revelation describes it. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Despite appearances, in the case of both Solomon and Jesus, the future belonged to the king riding the mule. In verse 34, David tells him to anoint Solomon as the next king of Israel. Now, anoint is just a really ordinary word in Hebrew, meaning to smear. But it took on a particular importance as in the act of anointing God's king. The Hebrew, for anointed, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which has come into English as our word Messiah. Likewise, the Greek equivalent Christos has given us the word Christ. King Jesus was also anointed. Indeed, this is the very meaning of the word. But Jesus was anointed not by a prophet or a priest, but by the Spirit of God. This took place in his baptism at the Jordan River when the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and rested upon the Son of God. As Jesus would later say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This shows the superiority of Christ's kingship. The oil that the prophets and the priests would use to anoint the Old Testament kings was a sign of the Spirit, as it showed that God, the Holy Spirit, had anointed and equipped that man to serve as king. But Jesus was anointed with the Spirit, Not with a sign of the Spirit, but with the third person of the Trinity himself. His kingship was not simply a sign of God's kingly rule, 
but the living reality of God's dominion. Still in verse 34, they were then to shout, long live King Solomon, or more literally, may King Solomon live. Now, according to Nathan, this is exactly what the crowd at Enrogel had said back in verse 25 concerning Adonijah. And the difference between Enrogel and Gihon was the difference between being on the wrong side and the right side of history. Simply put, who will be king? A further contrast with the acclamations of Adonijah and Solomon, Enrogel and Gihon respectively, is the passivity of Solomon versus the exalting himself activity of Adonijah. Solomon became king, but not by taking power as Adonijah tried to do. The kingship was given to him. In verse 35, David tells him, you shall then come up after him. You see, it was a steep climb back up into the city from Gihon. And maybe more subtly, we can see yet another contrast to Adonijah, who went up before going down, while Solomon went down to Gihon before going back up to the throne. So as we finish today, that is always the way of the kingdom of God. If you want to go up, you must go down. There's an old story told about a young preacher who strutted to the pulpit expecting to just wow the congregation. Almost immediately, things went south. He began stumbling over his words. He knocked over his water onto the carpet. And to top it all off, for six minutes, his stupid teleprompter would not work right. I made that last part up. Forgive me, I'm still working through some things with that. Sundays are like free therapy for me. Anyway, back to the story. He humbly walked out of the pulpit after the sermon bombed. What happened, he asked a senior minister. The wise seasoned preacher counsel's son, if you had gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you would have came down the way that you went up. It's true, this is an upside-down kingdom as far as the world is concerned. Because only in the kingdom of God is something more valuable when it is broken. And sooner or later, every human being on this planet who has ever lived is going to encounter the one who really rules this world. Even the most defiant will sooner or later have to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he is. We'll come back next week. For just as things are looking up for Solomon, the opposite is going to be true for Adonijah. Let us pray. And Father, I do thank you that you are the soon coming king. Every time in my life I've tried to put another king on the throne of my heart, they have never been able to satisfy me. For you have said, Lord, in your word, that you have put eternity in the hearts of men. And by doing that, that means that only you can give us what we really need to enjoy a full and productive and godly life. So I pray for all of us in here, Lord. If anyone does not know you, that today would be that day that they would step off that throne and place you there. 
for those of us who are Christians, Lord, that if we need sanctification, if we need to be strengthened in an area, if we just need to be disciplined, Lord, in any way, once again, we ask you to do that for us. And Father, we pray that you'd bring us back here next week. Help us, Lord, to walk in the Spirit every day this week and keep this word on our minds. We ask in Christ's name, amen.